Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Certified Forgotten. We are still the only podcast that covers films with 10 or fewer reviews on Rotten Tomatoes, even if you don't believe it, because this week's title, you're like, no way. No way in hell that this one had less than 10 reviews. It does. Our streak remains unbroken. I am here, as always, with my good friend, my partner in crime, Matt Donato, who must be a happy young man because he's Halloween Horror Nighted already this year. I indeed have. I am indeed a happy young man. They even had a Chucky maze just for me. They literally said, we made this maze just for you, Matt. And I was like, yeah, well, thank you very much. And there's a giant Chucky kaiju at the end of it, which is really goddamn cool. So, uh, I, yeah, live, live in best lives. I got my talking Chucky animatronic head or popcorn head sitting in the corner that if I had it on, it would have just yelled at me right now. So uh, trying to keep noise to a minimum with Chucky. Not to mention you stumbled across an original prop from one of the, the like Facebook marketplace or whatever. You're having a very good month, I feel like. It's been a good month for you already. It, 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 I don't even... I'm looking at it right now, the chair right next to me. Um, and for people who don't know in the quickest way possible, I got one of the chairs from the end of season two of Chucky. And only literally because like Tony Gardner was trying to sell it and he needed someone in LA to do it. So like whatever through through happenstance and all these things i now own one of two original props from chucky season two that's amazing well uh congratulations to you on all of your child's plays uh you know chickens coming home to roost i hope that the year continues to give with the new season of chucky coming up on sci-fi i hope that the gifts continue to give and you have more child's play than you could ever hope for the rest of the year Am I allowed to say I don't know if I love the show even? (laughs) It's so weird because Uh, it's one of my least favorite things in the the Chucky Child's Play atmosphere. And yet they're they're in like the White House, right? That's fucking crazy. Okay, what we can that is a that is that's a patron exclusive. We will save that for our next. We'll talk about that on uh, on our patron. But before we go any further down this road, because I know that you and I could talk about that for a really long time. I want to get to the heart of this week's episode. And so I'd love it if you would please introduce our guest. Sure thing, Mr. Monagle. Yes, this week we are bringing another special guest, as always, who thankfully took no time to come up with this title. I love whenever that happens. So if you are a guest on the show, please do what this person did. (laughs) It is podcaster and journalist Rachel Reeves. Hi, you guys. I'm so excited to be here. One might even say certifiably delighted. (laughs) Yes, good. Yeah. We were talking about this a little bit before, but I have to ask Rachel, are you excited because you want to come talk movies with us, which is fine? Or are you excited because you're in some never ending quest to have your name on every horror podcast that exists on the Internet right now? Oh, my God, you found me out. How did you know? I'm a completionist. I have to be on every podcast. Um, No, because there's a lot of podcasts. So thank God. But I am so excited to talk to both of you, especially on this podcast showing some love to some movies that, you know, don't always get their due, clearly, especially in the world of the internet. And, you know, I've guested with Matt on a few other pods, but have never had the pleasure of meeting you. So now I get the dynamic duo together. (laughs) It's true. We've we've got a whole shtick. It's great. Too too many Matts. Too many Matts. (laughs) Uh, 
Well, Rachel, let's start where we always do when we talk to our guests, which is kind of your earliest connection to the horror genre. You know, most people have that first book, that first movie, something that the first time they remember watching something or engaging with horror and were like, oh, I feel different and I don't think I'll ever be the same after this. So Mm -hmm. can you walk us through what your early relationship and your early memories of the horror genre were? Yes. So... I've always been attracted to the dark arts. You know, I've always been kind of like drawn to that in a little ways. But unfortunately, um, my parents were a little bit more conservative with what they allowed me to watch growing up. Conservative in that kind of sense, not politically. Mm -hmm. Um, And so like my very first thing that really scared me was Sleeping Beauty. You guys like Maleficent in Mm -hmm. the fireplace, like calling to her was terrifying. So that was like the first thing. And then I found myself like as I got older, I could read whatever I want. And it's funny, my parents like uh, like the line of what was acceptable, not acceptable is really funny. Looking back now, like I would watch a lot of um, masterpiece mystery like Poirot and like those kind of like Agatha Christie like reenactments on PBS. And then my dad would be like, hey, you want to watch Predator? Hey, you want to watch? watch like Terminator and for like for some reason that was okay and um but like horror was not you know so that's kind of funny so I kind of came into it from this weird like action side action horror kind of thing and then also Mm -hmm. like BBC mysteries and then finally when I started being able to babysit when I had a car and could like go babysit at other people's houses that was like my time where it's like I can watch whatever I want and especially if they had cable like oh my god the doors were thrown open so it was probably like you know like ninth grade when I kind of started really digging into things and just finding so much stuff and then it was just snowball from there (laughs) it hasn't stopped since i like how that kind of flips the narrative on the idea that like kids who are too young are introduced to horror by the babysitter but like you were the babysitter introducing (laughs) new horror to yourself yes and i have never for the record exposed (laughs) a impressionable young mind to something but as soon as they were in bed it was like oh yeah i'm gonna watch x files we'll see what else they got and you know just see what was on cable and um or rent something and you know at hollywood video and bring it over and watch it there and my mom would never even know and it was great so uh yeah but no i would never i would never do that to a young kid um but yeah that's... It does seem perhaps a, a little traumatizing that you're you are engaging with horror mm-hmm. doing the thing that gets the most people killed in horror movies, right? Like you are like, oh, I'm babysitting now, so I'm gonna watch all these horror movies. Oh, <laughs> yeah. a babysitter. Oh, she's dead. Oh, a babysitter. Oh, she's dead. Yeah. And I'm surprised that you kind of like were managed to navigate like if basically all of the first couple of movies that I watched as a kid were like, you know, oh, like a uh, 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 teenage homeschooled nerd that like dies because he didn't believe in God enough. I'd be like, Oh my God, I can't watch any of these movies ever again. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, that's funny. Didn't really strike me that way at the time, but yeah, looking back now it is. Why was I doing that? That was like so weird. I don't know. Or like why I wasn't terrified and making the connection that, okay, what I'm doing now, although I will say, okay, I did, I have a very visceral memory of watching like a very specific episode of X-Files. And then like right after that, 
it was like America's most wanted or something. And they were telling this, like talking about this guy that would like sneak in through the garage door. And I was so scared. And then finally, when the people got home and like, I heard the garage door going up and I was just like, oh my God, please be them. Um, so I definitely did scare myself. So um, I was not immune to the powers, but I think that was part of what was so great. Right. Like just, mm-hmm. just, you know, especially at somebody else's house too. Like I'm not familiar with it. So it definitely put me on edge more but i don't know i guess i liked i liked scaring myself what can i say (laughs) which episode of x-files just out of curiosity so it's called i don't even know how to say it properly but it's like scissorgy but it's about like the two like high school girls who um they get like these special powers because they were born on the same day and then like the planets align in a certain way so they have it's basically like a craft kind of knockoff sort of thing but also with some elements of telepathy actually Ryan Reynolds it's is in it as like one of the boyfriends. Nice. Um, so like baby Ryan Reynolds is in it. But I loved it because I hadn't seen the craft yet. And there were like these two like cool girls who were like killing boys <laughs> in high school with their telepathy, you know, with their witchy telepathy. And I was just like, this is so cool and also really scary for some reason. <laughs> well, you're even kind of like talking about the the movies that influence you talking about x-files talking about like action horror there does seem to be sort of a bent towards action horror in the way that you're describing a lot of these so you know i'm always curious when we talk to our guests that every there's a lot of hyphen horror right like horror Mm -hmm. comedy action horror you know all the like blah 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 and I'm, i'm curious if if you find yourself gravitating towards the mode of horror that first left an impression would you are you still somebody who seeks out like if somebody describes like oh it's an action horror does that make you a little bit more excited than than any other type of horror you might hear described oh yeah that's definitely one of my favorite like subgenres. yeah especially if you're blending sometimes some elements of like sci-fi or some like thriller elements but those kind of like those action set pieces i think are always so cool like even films like, like upgrade like I love those mm. or like overlord, you know, things that kind of like blur those lines. Like I love, and I also just unequivocally love like action films. Like I'm a huge <laughs> Fast and Furious fan. And so any, you know, anything like that, I'm also a big fan of. Um, I also, yeah, the, the, the hyphenated things. Sci-fi horror is always really cool. Anything that's like witchy mm. and kind of supernatural. I'm 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 into that. I don't know if there's a type of horror I don't like. Actually, okay, maybe maybe one of my. It's not that I don't like it, but like horror comedy. Sometimes I feel like I'm pretty selective on. Yes, that's correct. Uh, <laughs> I don't like being outnumbered on that. No, this is not how it's supposed to go. You're never fucking outnumbered. Who doesn't like horror comedies, right? Exactly. Like, I'm the freak in the room. It's very good to have somebody else who's partially in my neck of the. Room. It was like it just depends. Like it could be really hit or miss with me. Um, but so that's probably which is funny because there's so many times where. I like won't push play just because it's a horror. I'm like judging it because it's a horror comedy. But then there's so many that I finally have watched and been like, oh, no, that was great. Like, I enjoy it once I'm in it sometimes, but have a hard time actually committing. I don't know. I don't know what it is about. It's what I say. If you want to watch 30 minutes of a half-baked comedy and then an hour of a half-baked horror movie, watch a horror comedy. Oh, yeah. they, they, They are... They always lose momentum because they always have to choose and they never do a good job of like making it work. It's a lot. Mm-hmm. Donato and I've had this argument a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a lot of nevers years. in there. A lot, a lot of generalizations there, Mr. Monagle. 
mm-hmm. the movies like Tucker and Dale versus Evil are, are the exception yes. and not the rule, I think. But yeah. Donato, you, you came off mute a moment ago. I don't want to grandstand about horror comedies. No, I literally came off mute just to do that. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair. Um, I also... So another thing that I kind of over the years have discovered that like I really love about horror and something that I feel like I'm really passionate about. And it's kind of been like a slow, like slow burn kind of growing passion. But I also love film scores and Mm. I kind of slowly started paying more and more attention to horror film scores in particular. And I'm just so fascinated by the way sound and music works in horror because it's such a crucial part of it. And I think it sometimes inappropriately gets like shoved into a specific corner of like, oh, just like noise and scary noises. But it's so much richer than that. Mm -hmm. And so I love coming at it from that angle and really pay attention to the sound, which is something the film that we're going to talk about later I think does really well. Um, And especially these days with so much content coming out and so much diverse content coming out, um, there's just such a wide breadth of composers and amazing people working in the genre. And I mean, I don't have to tell you guys that horror always gets kind of like shoved to the side for one reason or another. But I do think that the the music, too, is just another facet of that that often gets like, eh, oh, he's a horror composer. Oh, he just makes noise. It's like, you guys, that's not fair. <laughs> well, and I think it's easy to do that because of the generalizations. You think about horror. Oh, it's all scares. Oh, it's all gore. Oh, it's all titillation. And yeah, the technical merit that goes into a, any kind of film like gets... For some reason, horror films are different. For some reason, like horror films don't have all of that as well. And yeah. I, I think like collecting vinyl really drove that home for me. You know, like I've always tried to appreciate everything about horror. And like I used to listen to soundtracks on Spotify, all that stuff. So I was I was still aware of it. I was still paying attention to it. But really keying in and like years ago, digging into an actual uh, vinyl collection and that has been growing ever since that's what really turned me on to like oh i yeah nope nope it's it's a real difference maker when you get that score that just is perfect oh my god wait i gotta interrupt real quick i'm I'm glad that you brought that up donato because i was gonna one of my favorite things i mean i describe myself as being in read-only mode on twitter right now i don't (laughs) post anymore but i like i i have i have an account i look and see what's going on and one of the few things that still sparks joy for me on Twitter is, Rachel, your vinyl in movies thread that is mm. 60 entries deep, however many it is now, where every time that you see a record player uh, in a movie, you take a screenshot and you show that with folks. So like, that's one of the first things that I think of when I think of, of your work is not just the stuff that you've done, but also this really fucking cool thread that I've been following <laughs> for like weeks and weeks and weeks now. I love it. Yeah, I know. I was thinking about it. I was like, oh, God, if Twitter goes away, I'm going to lose this whole thing. I probably should save these just for like my own peace of mind. But yeah, yeah I, I, I worked at I worked at record stores for like 15 years. Um, and so I love vinyl. I collect vinyl. Like I, I'm so I'm really super passionate about phys- just physical media in general and kind of the art and the way it makes you especially like with with music engage in it in a literal physical way and i think that whether it's a soundtrack or an album like you're just listening it's a different listening experience and it's you're gonna appreciate and listen to it in a different way like you're actively engaging in it and something that i love about just kind of documenting all these records or instances of vinyl in in horror movies is just kind of the the fact that i think the earliest film that i took a picture of was 
1957. Like I was a teenage werewolf. And then there's literally stuff from like this year. And it's just the fact that this format, this medium of music that is supposedly dead. I don't know who's saying that, but you know, the industry loves to tell you like <laughs> vinyl's dead and they've been saying that forever, but whatever. Um, like it's there there's like never a year of film that you don't see a record player in. And I just think that that's so cool, whether it's because that's literally the only way they had to play music in, you know, 1957 or whether, because it's, it's cool to see a record player in a 2023 that's hip. Right. You know, it's, it, it doesn't matter just kind of the enduring power of this technology and kind of how it's ebbed and flowed and what it's saying at different times you know like in the early 2000s or the 90s it was like it's always like djs and like i don't care like it's always cool and it's always fascinating and so whenever i see one i just have to like snap at it because it's one of those things you don't think of but then once you start noticing you can't help notice and then yeah i've got i think i'm up to like 80 or something right now but and that's just i'm only doing it when i see them so that's not Mm -hmm. even like going back and stuff that I know it's in, but it's like, well, I haven't rewatched that yet. So I can't go take a picture of that yet. Um, and so that, yeah, that's just, I don't know. It's fun. I like doing it. What's like, I'm totally that meme. I'm like Leonardo DiCaprio when it pops up. I'm like, Oh, pause. <laughs> got, got to take a picture. But you know that there, you, I, another joke I make a lot, but like, there's going to be some college student that wants to write a term paper on like vinyl in film like mm-hmm. the, the evolution of technology alongside filmmaking and they're going to stumble across your thread and you are going to basically save them months and months and months of work by doing that. So no matter how niche your interests are, I mm-hmm. swear to God, there is a college student somewhere that is going to geek out extremely hard on whatever it is that any of us are doing at any given time. We are making and breaking theses just by living. You're, yeah. You're welcome. Future student. I, I also, something you know i was thinking of like okay so i was watching the new evil dead movie and you know there's a record that plays a big role in that film and i loved it and was thrilled about it but i was just mortified at the way that they were handling that record (laughs) like (laughs) portraying it and throwing it on that and so like i don't know if there's ever like a vinyl consultant but if anybody out there is making a film and wants to make sure that the player and the handling and everything is represented properly, like shoot me a message. Like I will help you <laughs> so that it doesn't immediately pull, you know, the five super nerds like me and Donato out of it and um, make us immediately know that you don't, that kid does not know what they're talking about. <laughs> How often, what, what's the ratio there? What is the ratio of seeing these scenes and going, that's wrong. You're destroying the record. You're getting your grease fingerprints on everything <laughs> stuff like that versus actually handling it correctly i mean it's pretty if they're yeah if they're like actively engaging with the record and it's not just like a background set piece more than often it's especially if it's a recent film like if it's in like the 70s or the 60s or 70s that's usually handled correctly because <laughs> those people knew how to handle one because that's what they had but if it's nowadays it's like okay that's not how that works and that's not what that would sound like and that's nope so more often than not there's a few there's a few that handle it properly but it's usually the filmmaker it's like oh that filmmaker knows but yeah i'd say it's a good ratio of like 60 to 70 percent get it wrong (laughs) 
So when I'm handling my record collection, I, I'm making sure I understand this. The proper way to play is not to put the record on the tip of your finger and then try and like ring toss it onto oh, the uh, spindle. That's not no. the... Okay. All right. Yeah. And you, you know, oh, but you know, do you store your records just like in your car on a hot summer day too? I'm just like, it's fine. <laughs> Those no, they got a, they got those a shelf. waves are normal. Okay, no. <laughs> they got a shelf. I don't have kids. This is what I spend my money on. They're got a yeah. Place. They're fine. No, it's it's a snobby thing. So I apologize because I'm sounding very snobby at this moment. But you know what? Y'all got you gotta you gotta obsess about something, right? Or do you even have ADHD if you don't obsess about something? <laughs> and this is apparently what I obsess over. And also cheap record players and movies. Like, listen, if you're gonna put a record in your movie, like, don't get that ion. Don't get that Crosley table. Like borrow somebody's decent turntable because people will know and they'll know that that's a cheap ass turntable. So there you go. <laughs> I like it. Please tell me, have you not written about this anywhere? Is this like, is this something we can go like lessons I learned from seeing vinyl in film or something? I would love to kind of like actually see this. I haven't, but thank you. Maybe I shall do that. I do have a monthly column at dread central called terror on the turntable where I write about a particular film score of, usually in the horror genre um, every month, just why it works, what works so well, and what, like, what makes it a great partner in the film, and also try to inject just a tiny bit of film history and music theory in there too, just to kind of, my goal would be to broaden people's perspective on like how they perceive these film scores in movies and kind of how they're actually supporting and making the film better. Because I think that sometimes that just gets overlooked and yeah. I think these composers, I am not a, well, I am, I don't consider myself a musician, but I have great admiration for these brilliant people who come up with this because it's, it's magic to me. Movies in general are magic, but film scores are magic to me. <laughs> well, let me ask then, um, talking a little bit about how you made that leap from being an appreciator to somebody that was writing your own column on Dread Central about film, you know, um, participating in a, a dozens of horror podcasts, the, the 36 horror podcasts that we've, uh, we've established <laughs> that you're on. Yeah, at what point did you become, go from somebody who appreciated participating and and consuming media to somebody that was like, well, actually I feel like maybe I have, I have some things that I can say and I have some, some, especially at that intersection of music and horror, have some things to teach people that they might find interesting. Yeah, it was, it was honestly like, I mean, I've always been obsessed with it and I've been really blessed like when I worked at the record store and to have a lot of friends who we'd have these conversations all the time, right? Like everybody, you know, if you're a horror fan, like usually you've got those people around you where you're constantly trading and having those kind of conversations. But I hadn't really thought about kind of taking it to the next level. Um, and then I just happened to kind of get an opportunity to start writing for a site and was in I just started like listening to more podcasts and they kind of put out a call for like, Hey, if you're interested, like send us an idea. So I sent in an idea about writing about the Rosemary's baby soundtrack, because that's kind of the first film score that really got me kind of looking at horror soundtracks a little bit differently. And this was maybe like 2014. Um, and so that was for nightmare on film street. And so I, I started writing through them and kind of cut my teeth there and realized like, I really love this. Like I really, I've always liked writing, you know, written for like high school newspapers and that kind of stuff. And I love researching. I'm just a big nerd, I guess. So I would do that stuff on my own and then just kind of kept at it and have just been doing it ever since. And it's such a fun outlet for me. And, and then, um, 
yeah, the Losers Club found me through one of those articles writing about um, Stephen King book covers, another super niche thing, but just like, hey, there's some really cool Stephen King book covers. And so, yeah, that's how I, I, I met them and started kind of podcasting more regularly. And you know what? Now, now you can't get me to shut up. So <laughs> that's, that's how it is sometimes, just seeing those little opportunities and I don't know, just kind of jumped off a cliff and haven't been able to climb out of it, I guess. <laughs> but I don't want to. I'm having fun. <laughs> well, let me ask what your uh, preference is, because sure. I feel like I feel like I have a, an opinion on what I am better at um, mm -hmm. podcasting or writing and but what I get more enjoyment out of um, podcasting or writing. I have yeah. I have some thoughts on, on which which is fulfills different parts of which scratches different parts for me. And I'm curious as somebody that's been doing both for such a long time down and doing both at scale at volume, not like, you know, a lot of writers will go and a guest on a podcast episode every now and then, but you are really 50, 50 in terms mm -hmm. of, of what you're working on. Do they scratch different itches? Do you find that you gravitate more towards one? It's easier to communicate ideas or concepts in one, which is, you know, break down kind of the two for me. Yeah. So I love podcasting for the conversations. And I love doing that mostly about, I, I like doing it with music too, but mostly movies. I feel like I, I love hearing other people's opinions and perspectives because I think that's what's so interesting, how I can watch something and take one thing away from it. And then, you know, you two can watch it and come away with two different things. And I think that's so interesting. And I love having those conversations and um, about the films themselves. I, I think I love writing about music because especially something that is literally something you can't see or, you know, perceive in any other way other than hearing it, it, it's a little bit harder for me to put that into words sometimes. So I need to be a little bit more careful with my words to make sure when writing about this, you know, this oral experience, A-U-R-A-L experience, that it's making sense to people, even that if it's, they're not musicians. Um, so I need a little bit more time <laughs> to do that sometimes, I think. And sometimes that's hard to actually put into words. But for some reason, when I'm writing about it, it comes through a little bit easier. Um, so I think that's kind of the different itch. I also love doing interviews, especially with a lot of composers. And I enjoy, I enjoy doing those in both ways. But I think sometimes um, writing those articles and editing those interviews and being able to put those conversations into words is actually really fulfilling. And so I, yeah, I love doing interviews and I, okay, but I hate the transcribing process. You guys, that sucks. Yeah. But when it's done, I'm always really happy with it. <laughs> yeah. Transcription is the worst. Cause I, I, I did love doing interviews as much, but I cut them out because of that. I, especially on the freelance level interviews were the thing that were the most work and paid the least for yeah. the amount yeah. of money that if, even if like I was using rev or something and sending off for transcription, uh, it just didn't have the same bang, but like, yeah, I, th I think about that too, Monica. Like I, do you know, like, what do you, what do you think is your strength and your, like, which you like doing more? Because for me, I never would have thought that I liked writing more, but mm. there's just something super fulfilling about finishing an article and like seeing it go live. But on the same respect, like I love doing like live streaming, especially podcasting works for me 100 percent. But mm -hmm. something about being able to react to a crowd and react immediately uh, and like you see that reaction, you know, you're doing good, you know, you're doing bad. You, you're like, I don't know. I, I, I love that chaos. So like I think 
think it's probably what I love doing more. Like, it's just like that live work. That's fascinating. See, that would terrify me. <laughs> uh, it, it does. Yeah, that's the thing. It's terrifying. But like, I, that's what works for me. Like, <laughs> <laughs> now for me, I think, you know, I was a music kid growing up. Um, I, I went to college as a vocal performance major before I switched to media. And oh, you did? And, I was yeah. music business. I've been piano. So, oh, yeah. yeah. I was, <laughs> a, piano I, I performance. was studying opera for multiple years of college until I realized I didn't want it, that there was no future in that whatsoever. Um, <laughs> So, but I think, I think the two things that I always take away from that are like writing is writing is my first love because writing is just me. And so I don't, it doesn't, I don't require anybody else. I don't need anybody else. If I'm bad, it's just me being bad. I'm not dragging anybody else down with me. Mm-hmm. But I think the thing that I take away from being a choir kid is I like the alchemy of people coming together, right? Like as a choral kid, like I would never aspire to be, you know, the, um, even though I did musical theater and stuff like that, I never aspired. I, I I shouldn't say aspired. I was always happiest when I was a voice in in the crowd, but the crowd was making like really beautiful noise. I loved harmonizing. I was a tenor two, so like mm. all my stuff was like super harmony. I really liked being part of that mix, and I think there's an element of that psychology that I could unpack, which is also like why I play as priests or support characters when I play video games. Why I like doing podcast stuff where I just get to pepper guests with questions <laughs> is this notion of like I prop you up, you prop me up. We're supporting each other together. So there's probably it's it's probably a lot more ingrained in my psychology is, is podcasting in the sense that like I do love talking to people. I like trying to communicate thoughts in real time but i also like setting people up for success i like like i like the alley-oop i like asking you a question that i know you're going to crush i like mm-hmm. pointing myself out to you know set up a joke that donato can make at my expense like i like that <laughs> so it's a very like if you if you give me if you say this has to be something you have to do it i'm probably going to choose writing because i know i can trust myself and be involved in the process but i always feel Immediately after recording a podcast episode, I always feel really good. Immediately after finishing a draft, I always feel really bad. So I think that's that's that in a nutshell. Yeah. Relatable. <laughs> Can I say a hilarious fact too? I started college as a music business major. So oh, like, yeah. I, yeah, I, I switched off to uh, regular business management after a while because... It was just the the uh, job market was not great at the time. And mm-hmm. it was like, do I want to super specify what I'm doing here or just be business management? So like it yeah. was very much like my dad sitting me down one day and being like, I know you really love this music business thing, but like, why don't you just do business management? But yeah, like <laughs> literally three of us on the same call, like, same mindset. And all of us clearly using our degrees, I see. Oh, heck yeah. <laughs> I'm just, I actually, I, I work for I work for I work for a music department at a college and wait for my oh, day job. So I guess I'm kind of am, but um, yeah, I didn't know that. I'm 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 glad. Okay, you guys are music nerds. See, I I knew I liked you for a reason. <laughs> we're we're as my uh, as my music theory teacher taught me in college. Same church, different pew. Yeah, that is the uh, that is where we're at. Well, it's it's nice to know that if I had gone through with becoming an opera uh, an, an opera singer, then probably the two of you combined may have been able to actually help me, like with your business, your music business degrees, could have helped me figure out some kind of a career out of that. Could have sold me in some way. If only if only if I had only known y'all back then, I wouldn't have abandoned it. <laughs> well, another well, another all right, <laughs> it is a different life, um, but I. I, I'm kind of disappointed that we don't get to just keep talking about music and horror, but I really want to get to this week's episode, the, the movie for this week's episode, because genuinely shocked when Donato told me that we were going to be talking about Last Shift, I was like, 
No fucking way. No way that has less than 10 reviews. Like, are we making a carve out? What is going on here? And it does. So when we come back, we're going to talk about a movie that probably the most people that listen to the podcast have seen. The highest hit rate, I would imagine, among all the movies that we talked about last shift. We'll be right back. Hey, are you a fan of independent horror film festivals? Then join Certified Forgotten at this year's Brooklyn Horror Film Festival in Brooklyn, New York from October 12th to 19th. We're going to be doing a special live podcast recording on Sunday, October 15th with a special guest that you won't want to miss. So sign up today at brooklynhorrorfest.com and join myself and Matt Donato as we bring our little silly horror movie show to prime time at the Brooklyn Horror Film Festival. Again, visit brooklynhorrorfest.com to book your tickets today. Okay, welcome back. So this week on the podcast, we're going to talk about Last Shift. Last Shift is a 2014 horror film from co-writer and director Anthony de Blasi. The film follows Jessica Loren, Juliana Harkavy in a one-woman show, a rookie Florida police officer who is tasked with guarding an empty police station on its final night of operation. Lauren has a personal stake in the precinct. It is where her father was stationed before he was killed by local cult leader John Michael Payman. But soon, Lauren begins to suspect that the remaining members of the Payman family might also have their eyes set on the precinct. Before the night is over, Lauren will learn. I'm sorry, I'm laughing at my joke already. Before the night is over, Lauren will learn what horror fans already know. All cultists are bastards. <laughs> That's good. Uh, I, que- I queued it up. It's not funny if you laugh at your own jokes. All right, Rachel, you brought this to us. I was shook. Donato was surprised. Why this film? Not because you picked it, but we were surprised that it qualified. So what made you think of, of this film? I Okay, so it's funny. You know, when you start looking for a film with, you know, less than 10 reviews. And there's so many where I'm like, oh, yeah, that has to have less than 10. And then I look and I'm like, what the fuck? 87 critic reviews. Like, what is going on? You know, I like it was so funny. Like, once you actually start looking like what had been reviewed a lot and what had it. And then finally, I thought I was like, well, I have no idea. I'm just going to start entering stuff in because clearly I'm a terrible judge. And this is a movie that I was just trying to think of more recent films that I actually really liked and kind of surprised me. Um, and this one, I was like, oh, I'll give it a shot. Typed it in. Nine reviews, you guys. Nine. Mm-hmm. Like, what? what is going on? But yet there's a, over a thousand, you know, just random people reviewing it. And I think that that's such an interesting indicator of this because, okay, I think I saw this film for the first time in the best possible way so i have a friend dave richards who's a huge fan of this movie and just was talking about it all the time just like oh i love last shift you guys last shift like just always throwing it out when talking about some of his fave movies um so i finally watched it at night it was dark on my ipad with my headphones in and listen i love going to a theater i do I'm like, like, call me Nicole Kidman. Like, I'm going to be there. It's, you know, I'm worshiping in the theater. Like, I love a good theater experience. But there's some movies that just hit different. Like, with your headphones on and when you're just kind of home alone with all the lights out in bed or whatever. And this is one of those movies. And I was scared. (laughs) I was surprised. 
and it's just simple and i kind of i kind of loved that and so I had to talk about it because I don't understand why this has so few reviews. And especially, okay, here's the other thing. With Malum coming out, which is obviously related to this movie um, very intimately. It's a reimagining by the same director and team and stuff. It just kind of has been in at in in my in my own zeitgeist is that even does i don't even think that makes sense but i've been thinking about it i guess just kind of with malum coming back and being part of the conversation it kind of brought last shift along with it i think yeah donato i'm gonna i want to ask you about kind of your experiences with this movie too because i feel like this is it it's weird to call it formative but it feels Hmm. sort of formative because it, the intersection, I think of this movie as so much of like a early days of social media, like word of mouth type movie. So I feel like there was a period where like when you were starting to identify horror crowds and like, oh, who are people that have good taste in movies who I don't want to follow? This was one of the movies that was on everybody's lips. This was like, you know, 2014. People were like, this is a really good. You got to watch this. It's a really like excellent low budget. So I'm curious, Donato, is this one that you saw, you know, when it was first released? Is it when you caught up to later? When did, When was the first time you watched it? Yeah, so I came into this when it released. And not only that, like I had, I came into this knowing de Blasi's work. Uh, I unfortunately, in a way that prepared me not to probably like Last Shift uh, mm. movies like Casadaga and what was the other one I'm trying to give? Oh, The Profane Exhibit. He was doing indie horror and like, you know, trying certain things. I think he got a little better after The Last Shift. Uh, he honed his craft and most likely to die was like a teen high school slasher that did a little better at least. But yeah, so I came into last show going, okay, it's, it's another, another in a line of movies that are probably going to be along the same quality level, along the same tone and whatnot. And last shift did the same thing that it probably did to both of you, like blew me in the way, in the way that it's so well done as a chamber piece. It's so well done as something that just keeps ramping up and, it doesn't lose momentum. Like it continually moves forward. It continually gets worse and worse for the characters. It continually creates that like maddening psychosis that takes over not only the characters, but the people watching. So I, it was on a level that I did not expect from this filmmaker. And I don't think this filmmaker has returned to. So yeah, it's, it's a curious little uh, high point, I would say in this man's career. And like, I'm, I'm just, you know, again, like I'm so happy when the, those kind of things surprise me and, that very much was one of those formative. Hey, have you fucking seen Last Shift, guys? Like, what? Like, what yeah. the hell? Like, oh, it's just yeah. It's so funny. Like, I heard about this through yeah my friend, and it's it. Yeah, it's, I I just love that because I feel like that doesn't necessarily always happen. But yeah, it felt like I was watching, like I was uncovering some, you know, this secret hidden gem when he told me about it. It was just yeah. Immediately, I had to pass it on like the ring tape. It was just like oh my god, like. Now I'm going to just talk about Last Shift forever because it just, you know, shocked the hell out of me. It's, it's an interesting film to think about in terms of, of where pop culture was at, too. Because, you know, you go through and you read contemporary interviews with de Blasi and everybody wants to talk about uh, John Carpenter. Everybody wants to mm. talk about Escape from Precinct 13, which is, hey, it's it's there, or Assault on Precinct 13. It's there. It's definitely like there there are shades of that there. But the thing that he continually says in interviews is, well, like, oh, it's actually I really like Clive Barker. He got he cut his teeth as a filmmaker working on a Clive Barker adaptation. Um, And so, you know, I I think it's kind of digging through what a lot of people are saying about this film. I think it's really interesting because it's sort of 
epitomizes and maybe I'm reading too much into it, but it epitomizes that like 80s, 90s break that films would go on like stuff like The Void, I think is a really interesting mm-hmm. film that plays in the same sort of thematic sandbox, but also is sort of like a bridge between 80s movies and 90s movies. This one is is kind of like at a time where I feel like a lot of movies were drawing direct inspiration from 80s filmmakers. This one kind of has its foot in both camps, like a little bit of 80s horror, a little bit of 90s horror. And that's fun to see especially now at the tail end of like 15 years of 80s nostalgia, it's really fun to see a filmmaker that that wasn't just recreating, but was using a film in order to play with their own concepts and their own ideas and not just give us like, hey, John Carpenter part two, which is nothing wrong with that. A lot of really good John Carpenter uh, homages out there. But this does, I think this does something more. Yeah, that's, it's so interesting thinking about it from that perspective, because one of the things that I do love so much about it is just kind of that it's not afraid to be just so simple um just the fact that you've got this like really simple setup the really self-contained the small cast and there's not a whole lot of extra um i don't know exposition and background and all this other stuff that's like not really necessary for it to still be effective and i think that that's something that a lot of filmmakers maybe weren't as scared to do for some reason that's kind of shifted over the years i mean i i'm so many new films that just feels like okay there's like so much and and you know we can talk about the the remake in a little bit but that's something that this one does so well i think is just it feels so i i don't know just like boiled down to the bare bones. And I love that. And also even like the character, like the main character of Jessica played by Juliana Harkavy. I'm not sure how you say that, but like, I love her. I love her in this movie. She's so calm. (laughs) Like I'm thinking how like I would be reacting in a lot of these scenarios. And I just like, in so many ways, like kind of respect her, calmness and ability to kind of continuously recenter and she's very capable i i mean she does a few things i think with that that poor homeless man i'm like okay that maybe hasn't aged quite so well but um overall i think that i just really like the way that she's represented in this film and is just like a really strong central female character as well that's not kind of just falling to pieces either as a female or as a cop or you know a rookie too and not falling into some of those tropes. So I think that's another thing that I really respected about it is that she's really consistent, consistently strong throughout it, which I don't think that a lot of films would necessarily do Hmm. make that decision to have her be consistently capable, but also like ultimately losing at the end, I guess. And succumbing. And I I think it's good because they work that into the plot, at least how I read it, because you know, she's playing a rookie cop in a male dominated field. So she's already behind the eight ball, let's say in her peers mm-hmm. eyes. So she wants to make sure that she's living up to this idea of law enforcement and that nothing will shake her. And so when you when you see the character doing these things, when you see the capableness, but also that like toughened exterior that's going to keep her pressing on, even though things are getting stranger and more bizarre. I, I, I do think you actually can read that into the character psyche and say, okay, this is a person who is it's first first night on the job and already mm-hmm. getting chewed out by your superior in some senses. So like 
there's a reason why things are happening. Like the, the story actually takes takes note and says, okay, why why is this woman going to stay in this last precinct? Why is they why is she going to endure all this stuff? And there's a reason for that, and there's a reason that actually keeps all that happening. And I also really just like talking about the simplicity. There's nowhere for this movie to hide. Uh, mm-hmm. Talking about Harkavy as as the lead actress and is on screen so often by herself, but also down to what we we're talking about before, like the score, the atmosphere the the scares like they're so important to this movie because if the scares aren't well done it's just harkavy running around an abandoned the precinct by herself and trying to make things look scary versus what we actually get which are like well done effective scares that that keep us in and like it just shows how if you do things right if you do the little things correct they all yeah. come together in the right way yeah, I was I was talking to um, the filmmaker Patrick Young like years ago, like at speaking to him about he, uh, him and his creative partner made a film called Threshold, which is like super low budget road trip, very simple, also involves a cult of sorts. And he said something about how like if you're you know when you're making an indie film, like one of the things like you should never ever skimp on or cut corners on is sound design. And I, I had never really thought about that, but he's like, sound will make or break your film, especially if it's like under a certain budget. Like if it sounds bad, it's going to sound cheap and it's going to make everything else fall flat. And I thought that was so fascinating. And it kind of ever since then has kind of had me look at some of these films a little bit differently um, under a certain price point. And this is something that I think really helps this film so much because even when there's nothing on screen, even when it's just... Um, her reacting to things around her, the way that the sound design is, is, and especially if you're listening to it on headphones, like it's all over the place. It's very creepy. I think it's like really well done. And it kind of makes up for the fact that there is nothing on screen or, you know, oh, we can't afford to do some big like practical effect jump scare right now, but we can have these sounds. And that to me is something that just, always will get under my skin way more than some huge you know practical effects set piece like I could appreciate that don't get me wrong but what's gonna scare me is some really creepy sound where I think something is gonna like pop out at any given moment or I can't tell where it's coming from and and I think that they use the space really well in this film um, even when they don't have a lot of space to really work with um, and just the way she's moving around this space too. It's I, I, I admire that it doesn't ever feel really stagnant because I feel like it very easily could. Yeah, I hadn't seen this for a long time. I think probably the last time I watched it, I mean, might have been around the time it came out or shortly thereafter. So it was interesting to revisit this for me. Um, and one of the things that I found myself thinking about, uh, Rachel, to the point about sound design is... It feels like the sound design is feels like video game quality, and mm. I mean by that by that I it, it is a compliment because I there is a whole slew of independent horror games out there on the market right now that would kill to have this level of like three dimensional immersive sound effects in their games, and the best ones do. The best mm. ones are able to create a fully immersive environment. But I also when I watched it, I also watched this with my headphones on you know on on my laptop in my bed. Um, and it was, it, it's in a, it, it really is like, 
you know, I wouldn't, I would never say don't see this in a theater if you can see this in a theater, but when you really allow those like sound design choices, the, you know, the groans of the pipes, the ambient noise, like the, the diegetic babbling that happens in like backgrounds and around corners and stuff like this, as much as the film looks good, it sounds incredible. And I, I almost, it's the first time I've watched a movie and been like, I kind of want you to show me like your, your mix, right? Like yeah. I want to see all the different pieces that went into this because there's always something happening more often than not. Your soundtrack is just like something happening in the background and it creates an environment and, and a level of immersion that I'm only really used to seeing in like in, in indie video games that, that only have this level of thing to work with, right? Like sound is more often than not what they have to work with. Yeah. It's, it's fascinating to me and it's such a like incredible art form and like so interesting that, you know, you're able to manipulate this technology in this way and it just goes so far. And for, I, I really, it's interesting that I haven't seen his other works, but it's interesting for you to say that Donato and just like, because even I think like there's some really freaky imagery in this movie and I love it, you know, but that, you know, this, this cult and these leaders and these girls like, yeah, they're, they're saying things here and there, but like, whatever, I don't really know really why they're doing this. I don't really know who this guy, like you don't really know a whole lot about this cult yeah. other than they did some gross things, but they look fucking freaky and like the stuff on their faces and like that goes so far. And yeah, I mean, I love a good, really rich narrative film. Like I do, but sometimes it's just a different experience to be really creeped out <laughs> watching a movie in your bed on your iPad. And so I appreciate that experience too. And I think that this is a film that understood that assignment, at least at that time, and pulled it off really well. Um yeah. And so I just, yeah, I, I am just continuously impressed. I mean, and I hadn't watched it in a few years, um, but wanted to obviously rewatch it for this and it still holds up. You guys still holds up. So if you, if people haven't seen this in a while, like revisit it, it's still creepy as hell. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, the comparison to Malum too, like if we can do that briefly, yes. uh, because again, for those who don't know, Malum is a quote unquote remake by the same director who took his movie and said, I want to make some little alterations to the narrative and reshoot it and see what happens. And it's such an interesting experiment to me because the way I kind of described it at the time was he basically made the same movie, but not like you would think there would be upgrades Mm. in quality and budget and all these things, but it's essentially, it looks the same. It feels the same. It just tweaks the story a little bit here and there. And to me, like, I don't want to say it's not worth it, but to me, it's almost like I wanted to see maybe a little better production design. I want to see like upgrades on the screen versus just telling your story a different way. So I I actually think I prefer Last Shift, the OG, because if we're, you know, like, I don't know if I'm comparing it as horror, like vibes, the horror movie, like you were described before, Rachel, like the vibes are immaculate. What it's doing is great. The atmosphere, everything is so good. Uh, Malum overcomplicates that with the story. It it, t- mm-hmm. it takes you out of it because it then tries to do too much with its main character and how she's tied to the cult and all those things. And we just don't need it. Like like exactly to your point that you were just saying, 
Last Shift works for you because it is simple, but it's well done simplicity. Everything's there. Everything's well thought out and actually executed where Malum, it gets too cute. Yeah. No, it, it, I think it falls into the trap of trying like too much exposition. Like I don't, I don't need that much backstory. I didn't, I don't care. Like I, like that actually makes it less creepy. And like, it's more creepy when I don't think that they're related to this or like intimately tied into this cult. Like I don't, I don't need to know that. I think that, you know, it's funny because not a lot of films have done this. So it's kind of, it, it is an interesting experiment. Like, you know, I think Robert Rodriguez is probably the biggest name who's done this and done it successfully, I think, but you know, I'm not sure. Sorry. I'm not sure this is a Robert Rodriguez thing, but so many horror people have done shorts and then done, you know, transform them into feature films mm-hmm. um, to great effect. Like I, there's a lot of great films that have come out of that process, but to just remake the whole thing, I kind of was expecting it. I think like you said, to, to really expand certain things or do something like drastically different. And I'm not sure this was went hard enough into that. Like, yes, it's got a higher body count. You know, the prison is different. I mean, they fucking throw a pig in there. Like, that's all great. Um, but at the same time, like this Jessica, this this version of this um, main character, for some reason, has like a different softer energy, which I, I personally didn't relate to as much or find as engaging. And then you know, some of the editing that they use, like I think that they were trying to mirror with the original now feels a little bit dated, I think. Whereas like in the original, it was, you know, it's it's a little while ago. Like it made more sense. I feel like, whereas here it was like, okay, I don't know. Um, And, you know, no spoilers. I think that there's some things that it does in the ending that it was like, all right, well, that's kind of cool. But I kind of wish I had seen it in maybe a different movie. I think that if I had seen this, not seeing last shift not knowing it was related to last shift i think it's fine like i think it would have been fun i think i would have enjoyed it more actually but when you're comparing it to to last shift i think that actually kind of hurts it a little bit so if you haven't seen either and want to see malum maybe watch that first (laughs) and then go and see last shift i think maybe that might help you enjoy it but i i do think it's interesting he even went this route and had the guts to to revisit it. I, I do admire that because I don't think a lot of people would have necessarily, especially when something was received pretty well at the time, to say, like, I'm going to go back and redo this film that people love. And like, OK, I guess. Sure. Why not? <laughs> yeah, I could go on for days about the reasons why you would remake something and I, I won't hear. I have many times. So yeah. like, I'll, I'll say I'll save the, the recording time. But yeah, Malum doesn't check any of those boxes. Like it, it doesn't, the reasons why you would go back and remake something, whether that's a budget or time period or something, mm-hmm. this just felt a little indulgent and maybe not in a terrible way. Like God bless yeah. de Blasi saying, I made my movie, but I, I kind of want to tweak something. Like I, something isn't right to me. I, I want to try this a different way. And to be afforded that opportunity is wonderful. Like, like for any yeah. film, course, like jump at it. You get to make another movie and like, you get to course correct something that maybe has bugged you for a little bit. But yeah, that was, uh, yeah, I just odd, just an odd choice to me. Yes. But also something, you know, whatever. I, I am great. I think it's cool. Cause I think that maybe a lot of people are now discovering last shift that didn't, 
you know, Mm -hmm. that first time around. And so I think that that is cool. And it'll be interesting to see as time goes on, you know, as he continues to make films, um, which one they continue to keep asking about. And so I think that that's, I don't know, maybe we'll get the, the trilogy, the 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 malum payment i don't know why he changed the name too of the cult um maybe because a hereditary is that i don't know but yeah yeah maybe it'll end up being one of those evil dead situations where everybody's like no malum is a remake and like no malum is a sequel and who knows Mm -hmm. yeah i guess time will tell um I do. I have a question then for everyone as well. I'm going to take Mongol's job that he usually does. But I mean, like, so if you have not seen Last Shift or Malum, I suggest you go do that before I ask this question. Pause the podcast, do the thingy, watch the movies, but then come back because I want to ask both of you how, like, how the ending plays for you. Because I think that the first time I ever saw this movie, the ending is what stuck with me the most, and the ending is, like, the most divisive aspect of it. Mm. So whether that is the, if you're listening, I hope you've seen the movies by this point, so I'm going to say it. This is your last chance. Go now. Forever hold your peace. Um, you get to the end, and you realize it is all a vision that she is having. She is... Uh, gone crazy let's say possessed however you want to interpret it and she dies like she's has that joe no yeah has that joe what the fuck um yeah so like what do you think i don't like i don't know like how do you think how does that play to you How, how does that work to you i loved it i loved it because it just showed that like you know, especially, okay, so in Last Shift, you know, she's got all these coping mechanisms. She's reciting this, like, policeman's oath or something. I don't know. But, it, you know, I it's more of like a, you know, an affirmation, kind of like a, a coping mechanism, I think, to keep her calm. And it's just, and kind of touching on what we were just talking about, it's showing that, yes, she's a cop. Yes, she's strong. Yes, she's capable. But she can't escape the grips and the powers of this cult, right? Like, she's going against everything that she's literally believing in because they're in her head. And that, to me, is, like, really scary. And just kind of when it all comes together, I think that it's, like, I think it's a great ending. And then even in the new one, it's similar. It works less for me. Like, I, I think that some of the things look really cool in, in Malum. Like, I think some of the practical effects and, you know, like the like there's like this big final boss character that I think looks like, oh, that's super cool. Um, it doesn't work as well for me, I think, because it is a little bit too elaborate and just kind of like excessive. It's not quite as, as simple. Um, but I, I do like the idea that they couldn't escape. And I think that that's really dark in this whole movie. They were just kind of doomed. And that's, you know, not a choice that every film makes. But I appreciate that they weren't scared to go there and just be like, oh, yeah, they're fucked. <laughs> yeah, I love the the direction that it takes in the ending. You know, I think one of the things that's most impressive to me about Last Shift is the fact that the movie never visually repeats itself. It is yeah. 90 minutes of a lot of ideas a lot of visual horror concepts and it never once doubles back we never get like two versions of the same scare or two versions of the same atmo it is somebody who is like basically if i can think of it i'm going to find it for it and it all works doesn't feel like a haunted house it all Mm -hmm. holds together i wish i loved this i don't know why i don't i've tried to like i admire the heck out of this movie and i don't know what's missing what little piece about it that, that doesn't put it over the top for me i think it might just be honestly a little too similar 
uh, to Session Nine, which is a mm. movie that I have given all of my love to, which deals like yeah. you know people abandon bad character, kills everybody, like in the end, it, it, you know, nobody wins kind of thing. I think maybe it's just like that sucked all the oxygen out of the room for that particular story. But I I remember the first time I watched it, really not liking the ending. And this time I really did like the ending. Maybe I'm just getting more nihilistic as I age. <laughs> but I also like, I like the world we live in, fucking the bad guys win a lot. Not just sometimes, like a lot of the times. And I, I take comfort and I find value in horror now that has the guts to be like, there is no, and not one of those like bullshit, like, uh, you know, hand comes out of the grave in the final three seconds, like a genuine, like the good guys lost, the bad guys won type ending. I, I think that is... I think that's gutsy and I think that that feels grounded to me in a way that, you know, I want, I always want my horror characters to survive. I think Jessica survives. Like I believe with all my heart that she gets to the hospital and she's okay. And she goes to jail for the rest of her life. <laughs> I want everybody to survive, but it's I like dark. <laughs> it's super dark, but it's better than what, you know, it's better than bag on the head and dragged off to, to hillbilly hell. Yeah. But I no, the ending works for me. I, I think it's not, watching it now it's not it's not a jump kind of thing it i don't see this movie ending any other way Mm -hmm. because this was always like she was fucked from the jump basically like this was this was the only way this was ever going to go and if she was in home alone she still would be to all the like this could have been said anywhere right if she was in her apartment by herself guess what in her apartment by herself she gets visited by three ghosts and like all of this like this was the end for her yeah isn't that what the dude was saying basically like i can't remember his exact words but like i will come for you and everyone mm-hmm. you like i'll come back and for everyone you love like so yeah she was doomed she never even knew but she was doomed from the get yeah it's it's that nihilism i, th- I think i agree with you monola where like I, I do want my horror movies sometimes to treat me like an adult like to, like treat me and show yeah. me the dark shit because once again i i agree with you like it's life <laughs> like there's no escaping that like you're the good guy doesn't always win and the unfortunate nature of just the fact that like it's also the hereditary thing just that she was never gonna let this go she was always gonna be doomed by this and it's the idea of maybe some survival would have meant letting that go letting her father go letting that trauma go but you know she couldn't and that ultimately cost her own demise so i i do think it just wraps up completely just i've, I've just heard complaints about the movie if they exist from someone it's about the ending and hmm. wanting to see jessica maybe have a different outcome like maybe she does break the cycle but nah like we're all fucked <laughs> like there's not it's not much cycle to break and it's not cruel which is yeah. another thing there are, there are movies that will kill their main character but like it's the rob zombie thing where they're like look what i can do and i'm like yeah, yeah you can do bad things like you should feel bad about yourself for doing bad things this is a movie that that takes the darkest path but doesn't revel in it doesn't like is it's the point of the film is not to like pat itself on the back for how ugly it can be in the final moments. This is just what happened to her. And I like that. That feels very tonally mature. Yes. I mean, it's a little mean to hazmat Joe, but that's about it. Well, yeah, but hazmat Joe, if hazmat Joe had fucking showed up when he would like this entire movie is hazmat Joe's fault. He shows up at 2 AM. None of this fucking goes down. Maybe, and we don't know. He wasn't cleaning some other place. He was at like a Dunkin' Donuts man, which like, no, hey, no disrespect, but I'm saying, you know, it is Hazmat Joe's fault. Last question then for both of you. Um, Before we say our goodbyes, kind of an interesting question for this one. We always end the podcast by saying, how does this movie earn the audience that it doesn't have? The movie kind of fucking has an audience. It has enough of an audience that the director was like, I'm going to remake this 
no change is needed and the audience will come to it. So this is a very different case than a lot of the movies that we talk about. So let me rephrase it just a little bit and say, where is, especially with the context of Malum, where do you think the ultimate legacy of Last Shift is? Is this a 2000, because we're about 10 years away from really digging into the 2010s in earnest. Nostalgia works on a 30-year cycle. Does this movie belong in sort of like the 2010 indie horror, you know, House of the Devil kind of like formative decade of horror films? Do you think this belongs in there or is this more of like a kind of a curio? And Rachel, we'll go with you first. I think it does belong in there. I think for a few reasons. One that you were talking about earlier, the kind of that word of mouth, that early kind of thing. It is a good like example of indie horror, I think, at this time. And what could be done on that sort of budget. I also think now with Malum, it's going to be an interesting example <laughs> of what what they did with it and just like whether that worked whether it didn't i think that's still it's so new it's still kind of up for debate but i think if anybody is ever wanting to do this again in the horror sphere this is going to be the example that they're looking at Hmm. and whether that's good or bad i don't know but i think that it was an interesting experiment that others are going to you know either use as inspiration or use as like nah dude it didn't work see you know, I, I don't know. We'll, we'll, we'll see. But I, I think that for certain, yeah, I, I'm curious. I don't know. We'll see. But I, I, I would like to think that I have faith that Last Shift will retain an audience and will kind of live on as an, like one of the better films. I can already see the think pieces. Like you were wrong about the 2010s yeah. and here's these films that you should have seen. And it'll probably be on that list. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> you can't. <laughs> I mean, this came out at a time, you know, like as streamers were getting more popular, but like VOD was still a bit of a stigma. So this is one of those prime examples of like what you were missing if you weren't paying attention to indie VOD horror, uh, and yeah. you wrote it off as something that oh, it's not going to a theater, so I don't have to give it my time. I, I think by 2014, that sentiment had faded enough where more adventurous horror fans outside of critics and like the diehards were starting to get into it. But I think it does retain that relevance of being an example of, again, like what people were missing, like what everyone was saying and these predicated notions of, Oh, it's just a VOD release. Like, why do I have to pay attention to it? Well, because those releases are where people could really be ambitious and try new things and go bonkers because like 2014 is, I, like I'm trying to think of like when there was the switch to, again, I hate this fucking term, but like trauma horror, and when mm. that became yeah. the niche type like type of horror everyone's watching, because again, not in the mainstream and outside of again the the major uh, indie filmmakers, let's say, you could do different things, and Last Shift was so different, and then to pair that with Let Us Pray, which also came out in 2014. Which is another yeah. prison set film about. Wait, that came out 2014 too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're both 2014. They came out the same year. Oh, that's interesting. So a festival circuit, let's say maybe they had different yeah. release dates, like when they actually did come out. But like to pair those together and to push them forward to be like, look at these two nihilist as fuck films that were just trying their own thing, and you know, both set in police uh, precincts, both had their own way of dealing with 
bringing hell there and having people answer these moral questions and stuff. So there's a lot to be said about like, you know, using these as examples and going backwards and trying to quote unquote, convince people that horror wasn't dead. It never was. We know that That, that's not Mm -hmm. a thing I'm arguing here, but if you ever did have to, had to do that, like these are the kind of movies that are like great examples of it. And I think they will endure in the right circles and the right people keep talking about them. And that's how they become what they are now. Yeah. Yeah. The only thing I'll add to that is that I kind of wish I haven't seen Malum, so I can't speak to it yet, but I, I, wish more directors would try and remake early like early early career horror films i think it's an interesting thought exercise and i'll bet that if you were in an era where like we just want them to remake the movies like every director is just out there remaking or that we want them to remake the movies they already made i would love to see what some of these like early brand anderson films right like some of this other stuff could look like if they were given the opportunity to do it with a bigger and better budget um, you know, perhaps with uh, actors that would sell the film a little bit more. It's a fun, it's a fun thought exercise to think, you know, take your favorite filmmaker of the day and give them a chance to just make their first movie again, their first breakthrough film again. What would they do differently? If it's good enough for George Lucas, it's good enough for the rest of us, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, imagine what like Adam Wingard could do with a horrible way to die now, like stuff like that. I, I agree. Oh, yeah. I, like that's the thing. Yeah, but. My only argument, and again, I won't go on about it, but when you watch Malum, you'll understand, Monocle. It's just, I love the idea of filmmakers doing that. I just think there has to be a bigger jump, let's say, to do it. Like, there has to be a bigger reason than I want to tweak the story, and that's about it. I'm going to give you the same thing. Like, cool, if you're going to go back and remake something that you did early in your career, like Mike Flanagan doing Absentia, like, I want to see the now Mike Flanagan version of Absentia. Yeah. Yeah. When you also hear so often about so many of these filmmakers with like films that we love now and talking about, you know, you hear these interviews and they're like, oh, that was just because that's all we had. Oh, we had to do that. Oh, mm-hmm. that person had to be in the film. Like sometimes limitations and limited resources kind of inspire the most creative ideas. And that can be really powerful. I mean, you even look at something like Saw, where it was like a nightmare production, right? But ended up being like, I mean, Saw 10 is coming out like this massive juggernaut of a film, like however you feel about it, like a lot of that, that stuff, that aesthetic, those editing choices were just because like, oh, shit, we don't have enough coverage. Like, I don't know, make it look all weird. You know, like, that's something that, okay, yeah, you give them $10 million. But is that really an asset? So it's it is a hugely interesting experiment i think but i also agree that if that's going to happen like swing bigger like dream bigger or you know do something like make it worthwhile don't just try to retread the same path i guess anyway that's for the remake podcast i eventually launch yeah that's <laughs> that's the revenge of the remakes question mark which is a spin off of you know your actual this one blurs the line a little bit Well, hey, I want to say thank you so much, Rachel, for coming on the show, for having a great conversation about music in particular. I feel like we don't always get to talk as much about music as I know that Donato and I actually enjoy talking about it. So thank you for for bringing that to us and letting us talk a little bit about horror and soundtracks. And this is your opportunity to to promote as many of those aforementioned podcasts as you'd like (laughs) and tell our audience where you can go, where they can go to, to find what's on your plate, what projects are coming up, where your new articles are, all that good stuff. All right, let's do it. So you can catch me um, 
uh, podcast-wise on the Halloweenies, and right now we're treading through Chucky territory. Um, so we just left Curse of Chucky, and now we're moving on to Cult of Chucky. Um, and so if you're wanting to join us on that journey, you can follow Halloweenies. And then Losers Club, they um, just dropped a big episode on Holly. I'm not on that one, but some, you know, scholars some Stephen King scholars are um his new book Holly and then uh Pot in the Pendulum we're in Saw country prepping for Saw and um I also do a podcast with my dear friend Jen Adams called The Girls on the Boys completely different we're uh going through the TV show The Boys um episode by episode and we just started season two and hey by the time the strike is over we might be caught up to season four. So <laughs> maybe the timing will work out. Uh, so yeah, if you're a big boys fan and want to take a little diversion from horror, you can find that on the anatomy of a scream um, pod feed and writing wise. Yeah. My monthly column that we talked about is on dread central and otherwise you can find me lurking about on daily Grindhouse or Valingo or I don't know all over the place, but yeah, mostly dread central, I would say. Donato, where can people find you? You can find me, Matt Donato. At no, no, no. The- list, list your personal home address. I'm kidding. Sorry. <laughs> Social security number. At- <laughs> you Donato, can- what, what, what is the first address you lived at? Uh, what is the last four of your social? Just tell me everything I want to learn about you. Keep going. Has, has this long con just been you trying to steal my identity? <laughs> You're, you don't. Have, I don't need your tracky stuff enough. It's not worth it. You can find me and my writing only at Donato Bomb, Twitter. Letterboxd, Instagram, Blue Sky. That's where I am most active. I toy around with the TikToks every now and then just to have some fun. And what do I have coming up? I mean, Fantastic Fest. When does this drop? This week? Yeah. So Fantastic Fest, that's coming up. That's a thing. Yeah. Uh, Brooklyn Heart. We're probably going to be doing podcast things there, but I'll also we see can't, we, well, Yeah, we can't announce a thing, and but it will be announced by the time Never. you see this, so it's fine. Yeah, whatever. I don't care. F- fucking fire us. I don't give a shit. Um <laughs> And I think that's it, right? Yeah, just find me at Donatabom. As for myself, you can find me on Blue Sky, really just Blue Sky, monogal.bsk, what is it? BSKY.social, but I'll figure out the the you know protocol thing eventually. Um, but I would also encourage you to go to certifiedforgotten.com and check out some of our really cool horror writing. Uh, we had a mutual admiration conversation about Molly Henry earlier that was not on the air. Um, but she has her latest uterus horror column up as well as some good stuff planned for September and then always good stuff for October. So go support our excellent writers. If you like what you heard today, leave us a review. If you liked it a lot, go to our patron and maybe give us a dollar, maybe give us $3 a month. You know, we don't ask for a lot, but we give you a lot. It seems like a pretty good exchange. That's it. That's the whole kit and caboodle. So Rachel, thank you so much for joining on this episode. Thanks for giving us a chance to talk about Night Shift. Um, you know, I don't think Malum is going to qualify for the podcast in future years, but who knows? Maybe by the time, you know, maybe in 20 years time with inflation, we'll be up to 50, <laughs> 60 reviews and, and it'll be perfectly in line. I can't wait. Can't wait to revisit it, look back on it with new eyes and called masterpiece. <laughs> All right, Donato, this is your time to take us off. Sleep tight, cuddle.